Welcome back to Escaping Gilead. This is Paul. This is Caroline. And tonight we're talking about episode eight of the fourth season. This one was called Testimony. You know, uh, on second review here, I was thinking, I was noticing the, the parallels between what was going on in June's world, which is the very obvious testimony that she gives in front of the ICC, uh, International Criminal Court, for those taking notes, but also was possibly the the moments with Aunt Irene and Emily later, was that also a kind of testimony that she was giving? Certainly, yeah, I could see that. I hadn't thought about it, but it was certainly like an unburdening and a, a release of the truth in a lot of ways. Because there's also parallels between what June is doing and what Aunt Lydia is doing. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. I can't wait to dive in. So as I just mentioned... This is the episode where June gets to try to sock it to the Waterfords in the legal capacity by delivering testimony at what they called a confirmation of charges hearing. So this is more like a victim statement, though. So I hear how you're qualifying that, but I would say that this is not actually the point where she is really saying everything they've ever done. Well, that's what I was going to say. Did you feel like... She could have gone further, like she could have brought more pain and detail. I think she could have, but I respect what's happening here. This is just the confirmation of charges. So this is just like, did these things occur? And then so she just gave it, I think, as simplistically as possible. Now, I think the details of it are important. And and I do think that that's where the whole Luke portion, where there's this question mark of like, should he come and hear this or should he not? Once I realized what she told and what the reality really is, I felt like, okay, this is tricky because now when he said, okay, now I know everything you've gone through and it's like, oh, you do not, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so I, what, what I was feeling like is it's not important for Luke to necessarily come to this testimony because the things that I would tell my significant other would be so much more detailed. And, and, and I would definitely be layering in all the things that were happening around it. You know, this happened this day and then, and then this person showed up and but like, I'd be, I'd be telling the full, full picture. And this was much more clinical, but because it was more within the context of this, this statement. I also put a note in my notes that her delivery was rather clinical. And I wanted to ask you, I know, for instance, in our own personal life, whenever you have asked me to go and ask for one thing or another on our behalf, you will, you will ask me to, to emote, which is something that, uh, I don't normally do if if I can help it. And she held way back. What do you think about that? Do you think she could have emoted a little bit more to deliver a little bit more emphasis to, to certain things? Or do you think that that was actually like out of place? No one needs um, a sobbing human or whatever in order to, to deliver the message she delivered today. I think that this wasn't the time and place. I think the way that they set this up visually where the the courtroom was so sterile and so solemn, there was this feeling of like, come in here, just say the facts. You will have your day in court in theory here, I hope. But until then, you need to just give us 
just the facts, as they always say on those on all those those law dramas. Right. What do they say? Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Like that's all they want. They don't want the rest of this business right now. And I don't think it's necessarily appropriate. I, I love that you called it sterile. Yeah. Because sterile means clean. Right. Yes. Not necessarily. Not necessarily that it's missing something. It's missing like aberration. You know, it's missing insult. It's missing things that make it unclean. Like you noticed in the second viewing about asking where's the Bible and us kind of wondering what that's all about. Okay, to be clear, no one said where's the Bible. Well, she mean, asked, is there a Bible? Right. But it's the absence of things is what's yeah. making it more of a sterile environment. There's no, there's nothing on the walls. We're not, we're not, you know, flaunting one nation over another. We're not doing anything like this is just neutral ground where we're just going to tell what we want to say are the facts. And that's why I think no embellishment, no crying, no big anything, because you don't want to feel like there's any persuading going on here. This needs to be like a precision scalpel. You come in, you do your your exact procedure and you walk out. There's when you, nothing extra. When you look at this scene, in what you described as the as a white room, there is sort of a bluish tinge to this and that. But I would say that largely in comparison to, to everything that is ever shown in Gilead with the drab muted colors associated with, you know, what we normally see in Gilead proper, these seemed largely untreated. Like, I'm sure that they were, but but still the colors were meant to be like your eye would see them rather than how you're kind of emotionally meant to perceive those everything sucks and Gilead kind of colors. What did you think of the validity of what the defense attorney was trying to pull with calling into question June's character, basing it on two things, her relationship with Luke and then her quote unquote decision to become a handmaid? I felt like it was a major sucker punch. I was not ready for that. One thing that was being clarified by a lot of people on our page on our Facebook, uh, we have a gigantic group now. Oh my gosh, Paul, we've added like 10,000 new members. So we're up to like 38,000 people in the group. And one thing that they continuously clarified on this point was the idea that because Gilead doesn't recognize divorce, then Luke to them has always been married. So it's not because there was a lot of like, how did they know that they slept together before he was divorced? It doesn't matter. It's a moot point because at least according to a large group of fans, now whether or not this is what everybody intended from the show side, she's an adulterer because she's married to a divorced man. Since divorce doesn't exist, he's a married man. That's the adultery portion. So that's fresh information for me. I wasn't thinking about it like that. But to your point, really, really, really thrown I mean, this whole idea that she chose to be a handmaid, I want to be like, did I choose it when I was laying on my back in the woods and you tackled me? Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I to me, I would want to go back there. But again, because this actually wasn't the trial and you weren't doing that back and forth where you were doing like a proper cross-examination and then a rebuttal and all that stuff, I didn't really know what recourse she had. Like, was she really supposed to be answering these questions? Or when Fred stands up and starts talking to her and she just talks to Fred, like, 
you know, it was like out of order, <laughs> you know, like I'm not sure what's happening here. So I don't even know really what in what went into the record as her answer or as how this went down. That leads you to like a great question in, in I guess an examination of the International Criminal Court might help. The concept of agreed upon laws worldwide is not a not exactly a thing. Oh, it definitely is not a thing. So what constitutes marriage? What constitutes... Like what is an adulterer in the United States who recognizes divorce is not the same as Gilead who doesn't recognize divorce. Exactly. So you're, you're already like in murky waters. My question mark was really thinking like, did she have to say anything at all? Like if she just stood there silently staring forward, even though, yes, the defense is allowed to ask questions, are you forced to answer questions? I don't mm. know. And I don't know what you were, what you, how much you had to say. I don't really know. It was a little unclear to me. I, I want to say that I feel like the theme for this entire episode is really like setting the table for a gigantic feast that's about to come in nine and 10. I think that so many relationships, so many new relationships are being formed and so many old ones got, have gotten really changed in major ways. So in this particular part, I feel like it was all designed to give us a heads up that this is not a slam dunk. Moving forward, I assume there will be a trial. The defense will have enough questions of June that this is not going to just be cut and dry. It's not you did this. And so here's your punishment. It's going to be like within the laws of Gilead, this was legal. And also we don't recognize divorce. And also we gave her this quote unquote choice and all these other parts that are like, it's going to be murkier than I think we were all like when she was sitting in the in the support group and she's like, I look forward to this. Like, I can't wait. I'm not scared. I'm not worried. I don't think that anybody was thinking there was even going to be one negative thing said about June. And even just those couple of accusations was enough to be like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I might have wanted to just take two steps back and not be in this courtroom this day. Because you're agreeing to testify against them, but what if in some insane situation you get brought up on international charges? Anything could happen here. The treatment of other countries toward Gilead's legitimacy has, has always been like a question mark that we've discussed on this podcast. Uh, and it reminds me of, I guess it's just a lack of my own uh, sense of history, but the the Taliban and how they took over Afghanistan without anyone's permission per se they just did and their legitimacy other countries in the worldwide community didn't take quite so seriously and they didn't feel so bad when they were routed out of there here's the thing that i will point to they followed the rules about crossing the Gilead border when it came to the relief mission. True. Which says to me, they acknowledge the boundaries of Gilead and they acknowledge the authority of Gilead to lie and give her, June, a badge and say she was Canadian. They didn't just say, we don't care. You're not a real country. We're taking her with us. Like, no, they obviously did acknowledge that Gilead is a country. So I don't know from the international standpoint, again, I'm telling you when Rita was like, I don't know, I don't want them to necessarily know I exist on the planet. I'm serious when I say that. Like a big part of me would want to just leave the planet as far as the Waterfords were concerned, because I don't think they ever stop hunting me. 
I don't care how protective Canada is being. And we did see that she does have security detail. They did explicitly point that out. But I would feel like there would be a bounty on my head as long as I took breath. And so I don't know that I stand in that courtroom that day. I know that that it was an important moment. And this episode was directed by Elizabeth Moss. And it's only the second one. And I do think that there was some particular shots where, like, we got some real sunlight on June for the first time. And, you know, you had mentioned the lighting. It's not just Gilead that's dark. Everywhere's dark. It's dark inside Luke and June's home currently. Right. They only put, like, one light on. It's dark in the library. It, where o- they have... it always seems to be nighttime in their house. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess by the end of the day is when everyone's home from their activities. That's when they're gathering. But even in the library, which I thought was an extremely symbolic place for these handmaids to be having their their support meetings, having it in the library surrounded by books. My heart was like swelling up at the symbolism of all that, you know, just visually stunning. Um, We do a decorating the set podcast with Beth Kushnick and small details like the way that those lights just glowed like candles and also the lampshades look so much like the handmaid's hats. Mm, Yeah. Like there was these small little details around that were like solemn and quiet, but man, it was striking. So going back to your question though, about that defense attorney, I really feel like the table is set now moving forward to a trial where I'm uneasy. I'm uneasy as a, as an audience member. I'm very uneasy if I'm June. I appreciate that she is so strong and she can look at Fred and say, I'm done. I'm not having this conversation with you anymore. But then I'm kind of walking out like, how done am I? <laughs> like, am I so done? I'm moving to another land somewhere further away from the Waterfords. Like, I've argued with you enough to know that you would not be done after just like one second of arguing with that man. You also know me enough that my fear is real. And I have said since being on that boat, I would not let go of Luke's arm and I would not be going places without my security detail. And I am not so naive as to think that my security detail, Nick and everybody else can't be turned by someone else's head or by some amount of money. So I am never, ever going to feel safe surrounded by these people ever. They bombed the Congress. How could it not still be somewhere in my head that they could bomb this courtroom building and snatch me again? I am the biggest egg on their face in the history of Gilead. And I don't think they let me just walk out on clouds. So how do you feel about the about an impending trial? Now, having had this back and forth, did you feel like, oh, they're going to easily fight back against this type of defense? I think that kind of stuff can be overcome I took for granted, like you said, that the rest of the world looks at Gilead and is like, those are some backward fucks. But apparently not, given the whole episode taken as a whole. You can't. You can't do that. Well, I don't know. I don't even know where you're getting that. The Mexican diplomats came to Gilead to learn more about what they're doing. Not in a you're backwards anything, in a you're doing something here that's working. So I I don't, I wouldn't be so fast to assume that you know what's going on in, say, Europe or China. Fred's words found purchase where he didn't even really expect them to. He said, yep, protesters are out there. He didn't know that they were out there for them. Supporters. 
not protesters. Well, no, when he hadn't seen them yet. No, I know, I know. But then in reality, they were not protesting so much as supporting them. And I, yeah, I mean, to see Serena and Fred's faces when they walk out and they have the realization that, oh my gosh, we have supporters and the narcissism. You could see their bodies reinvigorated with like, yeah, we are right. Like they had been deflated, Serena especially. She was raising her baby alone, happy somewhere in a free country, certainly not Gilead, and away from Fred Waterford. That was like a foregone conclusion, right? But when she walks out there and she sees them saying, Serena Joy, praise be all that stuff, suddenly that swelling of like, all the business that drove her forward to start Gilead and all the book writing and everything, you saw it. Like, I mean, you watched the woman inflate, like they plugged in one of those like happy, wacky, you know, inflatable men. Like you watched her fill up and the two of them were like standing 10 feet tall all of a sudden. Were you surprised that there were people out there saying, free the Waterfords, y'all, y'all are the best, you're doing the right thing, we love you. Were you shocked at that? I was. Like I just mentioned, I took the view that the world thought that Gilead is a joke waiting to just implode on itself. But I am not right. I was surprised to see that not only were there just a couple, but there were maybe a hundred. And they and they were emphatically supporting. They were rah-rah. I mean, this was like a big deal to them. Yeah. I You know, I was trying to think about this because this is a scenario where... Those people could just go to Gilead, I'm sure. That's interesting. So then it's sort of like, what are you doing? There were women in the crowd. Plenty. They zoomed in mostly on women. And I was like, wait a minute, ladies. Like, why are you even here? What it made me think about is this whole other group of people. Remember the Saturday Saturday Night Live skit um, when it's like, you don't know anything about this. Don't weigh in on this. Okay. <laughs> and then the people were kind of like behind these Jeopardy things and he would like read a statement and then they couldn't help themselves. They'd be like, I have an opinion on it. Right. Should you weigh in? And, and it's like, uh, yes, yes, I should, because I have a ponytail or whatever. You know, there was different things. McConaughey was on that one, but there's something about it that made me feel like these people aren't going to Gilead. They aren't taking the first bus across the border. They aren't volunteering to be handmaids, but it's like, they have to have an opinion on the matter. And there's, also this group of people in our in our world that has to be this like tiny little minority voice where you're like what are you talking about you know it's like they have to pick the contrary opinion of whatever the majority people are sort of like i don't know you guys right but there's got it's like it's like they have to be like devil's advocate or something they have to find this little nugget where they're like yeah but have you looked at it this way and you're like yeah but if you twist every fact i mean i guess you could get there but you know what i mean like there was just enough handful of people to be like yeah, y'all also, you can, I know exactly what other opinions you guys have because you're so off base and yet you're not there living the life. Right. You know, like you're, you're like these faux supporters, if you will, whatever. Like you say one thing, but you don't, you don't walk the walk. Exactly. They're, uh, what would you call it? Sympathizers. I don't even know what the right word is. I just, I know we have a couple of people in our lives where it's like, you know, no matter what's going on, it doesn't matter. It could be at the public school. It could be a part of, you know, a local election. It could be like anything. And they have like this way off base opinion that you're like, where did you get your (laughs) information? And if you feel that way, why do you live here? 
Like you're so adamant about this opinion and you could live any, why do you choose here? Why don't you just go? Right. And it's like so amazing to me. Like if you're so down on the way that this is being handled in Canada, just cross the border and be raped yourselves, ladies. What is the problem? <laughs> I'm sure they will take you. Uh, that's funny. It's rude, but it's true. Like I don't really understand. But I definitely feel like this entire portion with the testimony during this time is setting the table to the trial. It is letting us know every single thing you see here, if we go to trial, is going to be amplified by a thousand. So the defense is going to have a heck of a lot more to say. June is going to have to say a ton more in order to really sell this to these people because everybody was pretty stoic throughout. And the supporters exist and there will be more of them. And now they have emboldened the Waterfords through this exercise in a way that nobody saw coming in our group. They're going to have to lay out things like, what are the colonies for people that don't know? Exactly. You, you know? That's part of it, too, is that when she's like, it wasn't much of a choice. I mean, again, you'd have to uh, hopefully June's lawyer would stand up and say, here is what the colonies are. And, and I was abducted doing. to make that decision. Yes, yes. I was at gunpoint. Absolutely, so that, absolutely. These are decision points in your life that are supposed to be taken legitimately in court? In a legal sense, part of signing a contract or part of signing up for something, it has to, it can't be under duress or else that's not a legally binding decision. You didn't make that of your own accord. There's ways to talk yourself out of it, but obviously this was not the setting for all of those different things. I do want to say one more thing about that. I think that this testimony portion was important to have because even though you and I are avid watchers and we've paid attention all along, when she was going through some of those points, you know, being raped at nine months pregnant and the fact that Serena had done it as a punishment because she was angry and embarrassed about the false labor, Honestly, I had forgotten some of these details. And so while I know some of our viewers that we've seen this on our page and stuff of people being a little bit, you know, like what what's with this recap sort of feel of why, why, why do we have to listen to what happened and have to listen to it for so long like this without kind of the gruesome details, but just sort of like a summary of The Handmaid's Tale thus far? Yeah. I think it was important because I kind of had forgotten some of these moments and they're certainly not small moments and they help you understand why June is where she is with the support group and why she feels the way she does because different things have happened to her that we kind of forget as the audience. But also that was in the Luke story for this one. He had said something beforehand about not knowing and him t kind of taking this action as a way to know, like you mentioned earlier, now he feels like he knows so, quote unquote, that maybe they can move on. Oy, oy, oy. When he Luke. said that whole thing, well, now I know what happened. So now I'm like, we're good to move on. I was like, oh my goodness. Like, again, you have I, like the Cliff's Notes, bro. You're not going to pass not the even test. The Cliff's Notes. <laughs> I mean, you got like, you got like, Concurrently, if you took the individual day she talked about, you got like a week out of seven years of what happened. You know, like this is so much more insane than you could possibly imagine. I think that the conversation that we've been waiting about Hannah and again, it's been just digging at him about not knowing about Hannah. Do you feel like when they went in the bedroom and they started to talk, is she going to tell the real story at this point moving into nine? Yeah, I do. I think this is tied into part of her newfound process of you have to face things directly, no matter how painful it is that she kind of worked through. It was sort of like Emily was like her trial 
to figure out like, like what would happen if you made somebody work through it by facing the person? Okay. That this is what happened. And she felt good about it. Okay. Let's go to Luke then. Like you're going to be my second experiment in this. She wants people to not, not only just kind of face anger, but to like feed on it, like hang on to it. If she was in star Wars, she'd be a Sith because she wants to use the emotion and draw power from it. So that's what my big question to you about the entire group scenario was, is how do you feel about her deciding to use Emily and her pain to kind of weaponize the rest of the women in that group? Like I said, I think it was a trial for her. I think she was trying to see, well, what will happen if Emily does face this woman, which let's talk about anti-Irene here. She is the woman who was responsible for having Emily's partner killed and her mutilated. And this is something that like, I know we keep using the word like mutilated and that's sort of like a very soft way of saying they cut her clitoris off. This is insane to me, insane to me. Like I could not be like more incensed when we were watching that episode. And so the anger that I felt for everything here, like this was so much more than what even had been described in the testimony, right? This was just a whole nother level. And we can't let these people go because if we let these individual people go, it was all symbolic of letting the Waterfords go, right? So we can't let anyone go. We can't let Aunt Irene go and, and not have to answer to anything because then that sort of is like this passive forgiveness, if you will. You know, we have to make everyone answer to everything. So as a reviewer and as an audience member, I don't like to step out of the situation to the point where I'm just watching it and only watching it. But in this case, I feel like I'm so outside of the level of pain and trauma that these women have been through that it's difficult to talk about what's right and what's wrong or anything like that. I think that for those within this group who have had the highest level of abuse that we have seen and we have witnessed I think for them, there is like complete grace, like whatever it is you need to do to make this better for yourself is what you need to do. Because certainly one size doesn't fit all when it comes to dealing with grief and trauma. But also there's this like there's a whole personal level of just like, who are you and what do you need? I asked you this question when we watched this the first time and I'm still really grappling with it. June confronts Moira with this concept of is healing the only goal? Can that be the only goal? And I was really struggling with this idea of, can you be an active advocate for something that you feel passionately about and that has happened to you and you feel it to your bone and also have a level of healing? Can those two things exist together? Or is it like, by definition, if you're healing or healed, then somehow have you had to let go of wanting to use that anger or like, you know, you're kind of trying to categorize them like, oh, well, you're a Sith now. Well, maybe not. Maybe it's like, what can there be a good anger? Can you draw some strength from anger and not be a bad person, not be a Sith, not be on the dark side of things? Can you be an advocate and draw on that passion, but somehow mentally and emotionally be on the path to healing. 
is can those things live together? And I've been struggling with this idea. Like you said, drawing from the passion, okay, but feeding on the anger and sort of nurturing that to to, to stay angry like that. How do you feel? I mean, do you do you equate like a healed? I I like the words that come up in my mind when I think of healing is peace. You know? Yeah. So, okay. So I'm going to share some of our personal story a little bit with you guys so that you have some basis to understand that we have our own personal traumas and, and, and healing that we go through. So our eldest is deaf blind. And part of that ha- comes a never ending grief about everything that happened with her. And so for us, I think that, you know, the amount of times that we have had to advocate for people with deaf blindness, whether it be at a state level, a national level, a local school level, or an individual one-on-one level, there is a portion where you have to use your passion and your, I'm going to say anger at the lack of what this person is doing, whatever this person is doing wrong, right? You have to like confront it. But at the same time, somehow you have to be able to walk away from that meeting and not have it let you just consume your life because at the end of the day, we would still have three babies to come home to. I couldn't come home in a rage and be raging out for the rest of my life. Like I couldn't do that, but I still had to be a strong, angry advocate and still be effective in those moments. But I had to have the compassionate, healed, quieter side for the rest of my life, you know, to actually be able to handle everything. So on on some level, I do think they can exist. I do think you can compartmentalize that anger because certainly you and I have had those moments in meetings where we are angry. There is real rage. But again, I can't come home and look at three little special needs faces and have that anger be the the top feeling, you know, that's going on with me. I relate to everything through pop culture. And what you're talking about reminds me of the Incredible Hulk. And in the Avengers movie, they say, don't you need to get angry? And he says, I'm always angry. And then he turns into the Hulk like that. And what you're saying is about the same thing. Because through the rest of it, Bruce Banner's just mild-mannered. He's like constantly keeping his shit together. But when he needs to turn it on... He does because well, it's always I, there for him. And I think we're like that too, though. I mean, we're always low, low key angry about what happened with our child. We're That's always right. low key mad. There's always a simmering under the surface that, you know, we talk about a lot that like maybe most people on a scale of one to 10 are walking around at like a three when we're walking around at like a six. That's true. You know? And so I I don't think June is wrong to say the goal doesn't need to be to push all these people down to a zero when it comes to their anger and their, and their grief and their frustration and their need to act right? Their need to just not sit and talk about it, but their need to make some real change. Because we have seen the only way we have made real change, and we have made real change. We were huge in the Helen Keller movement when it came to recently, in the last couple of years, they were going to take Helen Keller out of the textbooks. We were huge in in making sure that Texas didn't do that. You were passionate in talking to the legislative bodies. I was passionate on the news stations speaking about this and the importance of this. This whole thing comes from a place of anger that conditions aren't better, that we would continuously try to sweep things under the rug. It's the same place, right? But as a human being and as a family, 
we can't walk around at a, at a 10, you know, there's, there's a time and a place to be at a 10. Maybe a support group is an acceptable place to be at a 10. And then you go about the rest of your day at like, hopefully like a four or five or something, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe only in your best of moments, you can get down to like a one when you're like meditating or something. But I do think it's fairly unrealistic to just expect people to get down to a zero. I almost think you would have to artificially numb someone, right? Through drugs, alcohol, something else. Like you'd have to artificially numb yourself to get to that point. I think it's just because it's a human psyche, you know? You've mentioned that this episode probably serves up the next two episodes. And so so what you're saying about... I asked you, then you asked me back, and we kind of wound up on this idea of of stoking these fires that Moira was trying to tamp down, and June is turning the gas back up. But the trouble with fire is that sometimes it doesn't do what you want. I agree, right? You can't control, especially anger. You can't control how that's necessarily going to play out. I, I mean, we can speak for just a moment about the little capsulized Emily story here because we didn't really get too far into it. We spoke about would you want to confront the person who hurt you so badly? Would you want to confront the Waterfords? Would you want to confront the aunt who who did this to you? And we have mixed feelings on that, right? Mm-hmm. On some hand, yeah, I think that would bring some closure. On some other hand, the fear for me would be so... So real. I know this woman can't do something to me right now, but at the same time, my fear would be winning out over my anger. And I kind of feel like that's what was happening with Emily in a lot of ways. Like she just wanted to get away from this woman. If I'm Emily, I wonder if I know that in the past when I have been driven beyond nine, you know, on my Emily scale of emotions, I have done some crazy shit. Which we need to remind the viewers because uh, we need to remind our listeners because there's a fair shot that people have forgotten Emily driving around that little roundabout. Yeah. Popping a guy's head, getting... uh, Running over his head. Remember that? Yeah. And then she got sent to the colonies and killed uh, a wife that had been sent to the colonies. So if she gets driven to a certain point, she hulks out. Didn't she also with Aunt Lydia? I mean, didn't, doesn't that uh, how they got out of there? She pushed her down the stairs yeah. and stabbed her. Yeah. So, yeah. So, if I'm Emily and I'm trying to keep my shit together in right. Toronto, I am thinking, please don't push me to a nine because I don't know. I'm capable of a lot more I don't know what's going to happen think. at that point. I think that that is incredibly fair and something that, again, we need to remember that not everybody should go back to that anger and not everybody can go back to that anger because that anger itself has a way of eating at you and creating its own trauma without anything even happening to you, right? Like the like, let's say the abuse has quote unquote ended, but having that feeling inside of you constantly is creating its own damage. And the fear for me, the fear of what could happen would be creating its own damage. So What did you think about them showing us that visual of her driving again, which is what dinged in my head as like, oh my gosh, last time we saw her driving and someone was dead, she was the reason. Yeah, that's funny. Funny coincidence, not... Uh, I don't know that it was a Funny, haha. The way Alexis played that was an experience for the viewer because 
she paused, she saw the body, she K-turned and got back out of there, and her face was stony. See, I was like looking for any micro emotion, Nothing. I swear. And she kept everything so close to the vest. I saw nothing happening, but I also saw nothing happening. Like when you say stony, like I didn't even see a coldness. Like somehow she managed to be completely neutral. Like I didn't see, I didn't see an anger. I didn't see a smile. I didn't see coldness out of her. I just saw blank, almost like I don't even know what I just saw. So just pure processing then, not not even I didn't assessing see right then? Just- I didn't see it. I, I saw pure like watching a human just taking in information. That is all that I really saw in that moment. Now, what I think it progresses to, obviously, she answers to it. She gives words to it and she says, I hope. I'm the reason why she did it. You know, I feel amazing. I'm 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 completely satisfied with the outcome of this whole thing. Were you surprised that she actually was able to verbalize that? And do you think that that helped or hurt her? Boy, the lot of things. Like, okay, just restricting it to Emily, because I think the other women are also worth discussing a little bit in that up until she answered, they were all saying kind of sympathetic things like... I can't believe that, blah, 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 stuff like that. They kept trying to let her off the hook. Yeah. That was the main thing. They kept trying to say, you didn't have anything to do with it. This woman had her own issues. You were not the cause of this. And then when she gave her answer that she was glad that she's dead. And she hoped she was the cause. um, Then all of their tunes changed. It was like, I I would, if my commander was here, if my aunt was here, and that was obviously what June was hoping would happen but let's go back to to emily and what you asked short term it does seem like it helped her who knows this may even be part of the equation that gets her back with her pre-gilead partner yeah our family because remember guys she hasn't moved back in with them this might be the linchpin in that and what was keeping her scared because the little bit that we've seen of her this season she's been very withdrawn very very fearful very very sad very withdrawn is right it was the first time i really saw some emotion out of her when she said i'm glad it wasn't exactly a smile but there was something else there that was not i don't want to use the same word over and over again but withdrawn the 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 there was a crack in the armor yes where suddenly there was some of emily shining through again and it was like, wow, okay. And they did that visually with the like rays coming out of her head behind her. Yeah. I mean, I felt like there was like a literal like light from under the bushel starting to like come out. Like she is coming back out of her shell here. You know, I don't know what this means. I don't know if this means like every handmaid can now be a part of this trial, especially if they if they would have had any interaction with the Waterfords, which certainly I feel Emily did at some point. There was interactions with June that she would certainly could corroborate information of what was going on, you know? Mm-hmm. This is a huge shift for this support group. And Moira, mm, it's a huge shift for their relationship between Moira and June. Moira did not appreciate this. <laughs> no. Now, I do have to ask you, though, Do you feel that Moira has been in any way, for lack of a better word, brainwashed by sort of this sense of let's just all be happy and good now that we're here on Canadian soil. Let's all just be friendly. 
and nice and calm and and that kind of stuff. We we talked about how that she's very likely had training because of the different work that she's done with the kids placement and working with Rita and the different things like ish has she been basically institutionalized pressure to be calm be easygoing about this stuff even though she's leading the sport group but the sport group is like let's all just be like real nice about our emotions like you said we've we've had a certain kind of trauma but that hasn't been this anything close to this and no it's completely different and so the need to go to things like group support groups and that kind of stuff we haven't needed to experience things like that at least not to this extent so what i have to go on unfortunately is stuff that i've seen in other tv and movies and stuff which isn't great but it's what i've got and to that end it seems like very classical training in the idea that teaching people to cope with emotions and, and face that they can't change certain things because they're in the past or they can't impact them now, but they're not. It's just a way to move forward with what's happened to you without needing to keep going back and reflecting on things that you can't change. Whereas I think June's argument is like is going to be something to the effect of why can't we change it? They changed it so and they hurt us. So why can't we impact them now? And that's a totally different way of approaching pain than that kind of classical move on with your life approach. To your point, I think that one of the things that you and I can relate to is the idea that there is a very, very much this concept of fighting for an individual person like we do with our daughter versus fighting for a larger cause. And we have vacillated on that at different points in time. So sometimes we are fighting for the group and we have been a part of support groups and although they're parent organizations and and stuff like that, but they are also support groups and we are turned off when someone starts crying or starts getting all worked up or wants to yell about something. For the most part, we want to be an effective group in a calm (laughs) effective manner, right? We're not, we're trying not to come from a place of anger. We're trying to come from a place of kind of just logic and persuasion of people through storytelling, expressing our stories as families with our children. That's a huge part of how we try to impact things. And that's how the decision makers that we deal with respond. So far, true. Now, this is such a different situation because we have this whole like nation, right? That I don't know how this group of women is necessarily going to take down this nation, right? Mm -hmm. You have to take it down individually, right? So Waterford's first, okay? Commander Winslow, (laughs) there's a guy you took down, right? But one of the cautions is that sometimes you have a great, a big cause, right? And somebody in the group, and this, this has happened with us, you make some headway for your individual person, right? So June got out, right? Yeah. And once you're out or once your individual situation is better, there can be a real sense of y'all keep fighting the good fight, but I'm going to try to get on with my life now. And that's kind of what I feel like happened a little bit with the support group. Like it's a little bit like we did fight to get here. I mean, all of these handmaids got out in their own way, right? assumed we don't have the story for these other people but we know emily's story we know moira's story like they had to all fight to get out of gilead so there's some sense of like i did it my path is now here in canada i need to just take my path now 
right? A little like uh, Moira's partner when she was saying like, you could walk away from this. You don't have to keep fighting the good fight for the group anymore. There is something amazingly appealing about not fighting the good fight with the group anymore and just feeling like, well, my personal situation has improved because of X, Y, Z. That's something that my family did or that I did. So maybe I don't need to keep putting all my efforts into the group part. Right. So can you see how having June come back in and be like, wait a minute, I'm so fresh and I'm still so Remember, she has a lot of guilt on her shoulders about Alma and all the other handmaids that went down in the middle of all this, Janine, that she is still fighting the group fight. So I see this as two different just approaches where it's like individually, you kind of have to deal with yourself. But when you get the army, the whole they shouldn't have given us uniforms if they didn't want us to be an army. Right. That's a different level of power and a different level of commitment, I guess, you know, you, like, you have to stay at this higher level of engagement with the cause than you do. If you kind of just make it individually better, if you're just Rita drinking your diet Coke and eating your sushi in the sunshine, you don't have to revisit what happened to you. See where I'm getting at? Yeah. So I think that Moira has just been trying to follow her individual path. And while she can help the other ladies by trying to sort of be like, let's just keep things cool enough that you can you can kind of continue on your day to day life. But June's there to remind them of the larger cause. So I don't look bad. I don't look down on any of it. I don't think that any of it's wrong. The group movement is so important, but the individual healing is so important, too. So I think, I hope that these two, I mean, this is the big table setting for our Moira and June going to be butting heads for nine and 10. Are they going to completely go awry here? Yeah, I think that they are going to not be on the same page for the for the time being. I, I think ultimately they all want, I think they all want kind of the same thing, versions of the same thing. I don't think that some people want to take on the entire nation of Gilead. I think some people want to be okay just them. And I don't mean that like despite the other people or in any way like, but I think they, they can't take on that fight. That fight is too big. It's a nation that has taken out the entire United States. Our support group doesn't want to take on that nation. Like it's too big. It's too much of a burden on our nightly soul. Like, we want to be able to go to bed at night and I want to be able to open my eyes in the morning. I mean, look at the aunt. Like she couldn't take what happened and couldn't take like individually. She couldn't move on. So there is a real danger in not moving on, right? Not that that woman deserved to move on, but you get what I'm saying, right? Mm-hmm. You stay in that place and you can't move on. What could happen to you? You know who needs to move on? Us to Lydia and Lawrence. Is Lydia out of step with current Gilead anting? Is, is that is that her deal? Is Or is she feeling, I don't know... That she's lost either power or stature, even though she was reinstated and she needed to re-exert herself in order to to get that back. What do you think think drove her to treat that, that handmaid the way that she did? I think it is that she was thinking about like the first generation of handmaids and the fact that she was a part of a group where you were having to like break their spirits. And as Lawrence was very clear, this generation of handmaids have grown up in Gilead. They completely understand their role and they're they're being submissive. Like there's no reason to try to like beat Gilead into them. We're not doing it that way. You could tell by the other ants too that they were like, 
what is this? You know, this is, I mean, this is like a kinder, gentler. (laughs) No, it's not. It's, it's what happens when you've grown up in a certain way of life and you don't know any better and you don't think to question the the system anymore. So she is kind of a relic from when they needed to beat it into them. Lawrence said as much. He said, these girls have grown up in Gilead we're not going to do this. I'm not going to have any more of these types of reports. I mean, especially aunt-on-aunt violence, Paul. I mean, that was like, are you kidding me? But here's the thing. Old Aunt Ruth, she has been thumbing her nose at Lydia for a couple episodes now. Yeah. You know, when she was like, this is your time to take a break, Lydia. All that. Remember on the treadmill day? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she was quick to be like, you need to be put out to pasture. So there is that kind of sense of like, you're too old, you're like old school, blah, 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 to this whole thing. I think it was a shock to Lydia to turn around and see all these faces be horrified by violence. That is not something that she has dealt with anytime, including remember being in people's homes and just like shocking, you know, June and stuff like she is not accustomed to anything but pats on the back for that type of behavior. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, she is. So so given that, I mean, I weren't you surprised at the fact that they were that everyone was like, <gasps> like, we're such a bunch of pacifists. Like, where did you... Where'd she even get that cat prod? There did seem to be a big difference between the handmaids that they had to abduct and turn into handmaids versus these handmaids. It did seem like her behavior was deemed completely out of place, whereas the other ones kind of knew that she was going to need to be this monster in order to corral them all. I know that this is kind of backtracking, but I didn't want to overlook the setup of the chairs around the Aunt Irene when she was begging for forgiveness. Oh, yeah. And kind of the mirroring of early scenes in season one when it was handmade training and they had Janine in the middle of the of the chairs, Aunt Lydia walking and taking June was taking Aunt Lydia's spot as the standing uh, what would you call that? Kind of like the facilitator, yeah, if you yeah. will. Slash monitor. And the person in the middle is having to absorb the calls from mm-hmm. from the women on the outer ring. It was poetic, I guess, the way the the the, the mirror of of that earlier scene that they've been doing this this whole season, like with uh, someone made a a clever meme of when Serena forces June to the floor and and yells in her face, "Do you understand me?" and yeah. and June doing the same thing back to her in her cell an episode or two ago. She even has her hair back in a bun when she does it to Serena. So I, I, I yes, if I was. More eagle-eyed, I'm sure there'd be a couple of more echoes like that. I think that it's important, this this whole comparison that you're making between Lydia and June, because these are two women who, you know, were put into Gilead society in, and on different classifications, but Gilead has changed them, forever changed them. And they are struggling with where they are now in their life and what role do they play anymore? They seem to be still wanting to be leaders and also kind of flailing a little bit about how does this new group, this new generation, if you will, how do they need to be led? Like, because June was leading all those handmaids on the farm and everything. And she, there was a certain way of doing that. And she did it actually with a lot of diplomacy for the most part. She would talk them down a lot, talk them through different things. 
But then here we are in the group and she's riling them up. Where on Lydia's side, we had her, you know, she thought she had this group of rabble rousers that she needed to always be talking to and and correcting all this stuff. Now she doesn't have a group of rabble rousers, but she's still kind of trying to apply the same things that, that were like very out of place. And they just seem off kilter with their new surroundings. And even though they're Old, these are old surroundings for both of them. These are familiar surroundings, but the surroundings have changed. The environments have changed, but they kind of haven't. And how do they now work in this world? So then what do you make of Lawrence's solution to give? It seemed like just sort of like off the books, he was giving Janine to Lydia. I think it was pretty sick, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, and even honestly, even Lydia seemed to think it was pretty sick. I mean, she's she was going, no, no, I object to this. No, like she didn't want to be put in the position of being told you need to be like, as Lawrence says, everyone's got to have a hobby like and you seem to need to inflict pain. So this person needs to be like punished. So I'm going to give you her. I think it's sick, but it also drives me back to that June and Mrs. Keys moment of like, what happens when you're abused and you're pushed so hard and then you become the abuser in this way where you're, it's almost sanctioned abuse in this. I know all of the ant stuff is sanctioned, but you get what I mean? Where you sort of like almost voluntarily become the abuser in some ways Mm -hmm. that you start to do stuff where it's like, you're almost like, I mean, he's, he's almost treating Lydia like, like it's that weird gross guy who came in to do like the torture lieutenant whatever yeah like that she's that level of human being in in her mind she doesn't want to think of herself that way but would want to think of herself that way (laughs) some bad business but you get what i mean like it's there's something about switching sides of the abuse where it's like yeah no we're we're, we know you're an abuser and we're all actually watching you and kind of like being like "Mm -hmm." like he assigned her to be an abuser now I don't know. It's so much weirder. You know, it's so much weirder. But Lydia, master manipulator, her sharp tongue with Janine. My God, Paul. Oh, June left you. You were too much trouble. I mean, she just went right to work on the the, emotional abuse. The first time I watched that, I put in my notes that it didn't work. But the second time I watched it, I wasn't as sold. I think Janine, as much strength as I think that she does have... I think if Lydia works on her enough, she can get her to think that June left her. A thousand percent. I think the writers were clever in that they had that milk tanker scene where they had the total breakdown of June saying, I should have left you behind. You You're were too, too much, much trouble. trouble. Right. You know, and Lydia, same shit Lydia said to her. She's saying the same words and oh my God, you know, yeah. and the whole Gilead saved you, saved you from starvation or whatever. You know, we can all be like, well, she kind of found that Stephen and the BJs again and probably right. fine. But Gilead blew you up. Uh, yeah, don't for forget the- that part too. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. But I mean, I think all of this episode, because I think that some people have made some complaints that maybe this wasn't the most dynamic of episodes, but you need these episodes to set up the dynamics moving forward. Right. You gotta, you right? gotta tee it up. You got to. And this is like every ball is on the tee. You've got a complete explosive situation between Luke and June coming up where there's going to be a lot of question marks about her honesty. Now, here's the big thing, Paul. Luke exposed her story, her fictitious story to Tuello. And she's now going to tell Luke that story wasn't real. That's what I think. Now, uh uh-oh, what just happened? Lies. How is there not going to be a question mark about what she's saying about the Waterfords? Yeah. Oh, and now 
She said that to Luke to save him some pain and to hopefully make him kind of rest easy that Hannah was okay. It was all in a good thing. But we have that same situation going on with Janine. When you know Lydia's going to expose that her little boy is gone and it's going to expose June for a liar. And it's like, oh my God, relationships and things that she said to spare people. I think Mrs. Keys too. She's going to be another one who I think is still out there. And I think it's going to come to roost. Some, what happened with that? What did June make you do? And what kind of person is June and blah, blah, blah. Like, oh my goodness. I am so nervous. You know, the last season ended with June being carried uh, on the shoulders of handmaids while she was being, while she had been shot and they needed to get her to safety. So she's being lifted up, you know, mm. and carried. The end of this season may very well be she doesn't have a friend in the world. I think that that is very plausible. Very plausible. Because the people who, think of the people who looked up to her and supported her from Moira, Luke, even Mrs. Keys in her weird little admiration way, Janine, all those people who were like such supporters. I think you're right. I think by the end of 10, they all spit her name out of their mouths. Can't wait till we get there. Really Two more weeks. Forward to number nine. I know, I know. I can't wait. Let's go watch. This is Caroline. This is Paul. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.